Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. So if you studied consciousness, you're a qualified psychologist, and you're a neuroscientist, what would be your contribution to leadership? Well, I'm talking to Dr. Linda Shaw today, and we talk about everything from empathy and compassion all the way through to how in and out groups structure our home and work life, and where we need to connect and yet feel separated when we dip into depression. We talk about things like toxic positivity and how it's better to walk and talk in the same direction when you're actually trying to get someone to open up and share something important or be open to new ideas. She then does a metaphor about consciousness and a piece of paper as the brain. We also conclude that you need to look after yourself and that there is something called crystallized versus fluid intelligence. And what is the impact of that on our ability to learn? Well, I hope you enjoy this session today because I really enjoyed talking to Linda about this. As a little bonus, we end off with a little bit of a riff on what returning to the office would mean for leaders and what they need to do and what would your body suit look like for VR and what will be the things that determine if you are within the in crowd in a multiverse anyway enjoy today's session with Linda Shaw so today we're talking to Dr. Linda Shaw and um, Linda I've got a few questions for you you know it's always um, sometimes I come across stuff and I go like oh, this is going to be interesting to ask questions about. And one of that was this article on the BBC website that I came across this past week. It's a little video where they talk about empathy. And the first thing that came to, that I heard was, here's a correlation between stuff, and now we're going to add causation to it. And then they said that group, they talk about group forming and they talk about empathy. And they say empathy is then the baddie when it comes to groups and, and, our, and our way in which we dismiss people from outside of our group. I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to that. Or what do you think of this? Well, it's true. We, we have a habit of having in-groups and out-groups all of our lives. Um, it's, it's in order to identify with a small group of like-minded people. Um, but the trouble is we uh, demonize the out-groups if we're not careful. So I can understand why they're saying that. What I got out of that clip, actually, was that when we have showing somebody empathy, we, the reason that we have empathy is so that we can share the feelings that that person has. If we feel what they feel, we have a better chance of understanding what's happening and what's happening to them. And sometimes if we um, take that empathy too far, we start to feel people's pain and it becomes then about us as, a, as, a, as opposed to about them. And I think that is true. I think that is extremely true. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when uh, Russia first invaded Ukraine, I had the like many people in the world that first week, I was 
I, I actually couldn't come to terms with it. I, I felt impotent. I felt I couldn't do anything. I felt frightened. I felt all sorts of really negative emotions. And that troubled me hugely. And I didn't sleep properly and I wasn't functioning properly. My prefrontal cortex wasn't working properly. I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, so, but when I flipped it and I started to feel more compassion for the people, um, and therefore, my my next flip was, what can I do to help this situation? What can I do to help them? And that's my way of looking at it was raising funds at that, that point. Then, then that enabled me to not feel so dragged down into um, uh, this feeling of, of uselessness. Um, and that is, and I thought that was, that, that was, is, is an important distinction to see the difference between empathy, which can turn in, um, our, it can turn out that we are just thinking of ourselves and how we are, how we are feeling the same as the other person. When if we turn it to compassion, we are not doing that. We're thinking about how we can help them. And that, that is a very good way, I think, of handling very bad situations. So I, Quite got the, the BBC clip. I think from I think for me the same thing happened. Um, if you talk about that being unable to distinguish between my own emotions and someone else's, for me there was um, for me there was happening in my relationship. When you get so engrossed with each other and then you're you're in love with someone and they're going through a tough time, it becomes really hard to distinguish between where your problems and your issues are and where their stop and where's your starts, you know? And so I got to a point where, um, for Alan and I, I was so much into what he was going through because he was going to burnout that I could, very, it was difficult for me to extract myself from that. And so I went to see a psychologist and he went to see one. And for us to learn how to extract ourselves from that, um, I, I normally I tell him it yeah your stuff and you can replace stuff with a few expletives if you want to but your stuff is your stuff and my stuff is my stuff and our stuff is the only stuff that should be ours mine should not be yours and yours should not be mine and that helped me to make that distinction but it also meant that I need to look at what is that 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 compassionate side of things that the how do we take that next step to help. Because if that is our impetus, but if we get stuck in the pain, we, we, we don't transition, as, as you were saying. And I think that that's important. I, I like the work that, I don't know if you know Baron Cohen. I think he's at, is he at Cambridge or is Oxford that used to be done, done with, with autism. And also like the three, the, the triangle of empathy sort of like cognitive empathy, ability to see, and then affective empathy, that, that resonant feeling, which is either joy or pain. And then that compassionate side, where it more goes more towards the hopeful, the love, the, the caring, and helping someone else. And I think we, we tend to forget that that is a really important part for us to get out of an emotional, difficult, emotionally difficult state. And yes. I think that worked for me as well. So for the Ukraine, I, I started this, this action called Coaches for Ukraine, also based on that, because I know that the moment I reach out and do something, it's like I not, not create only hope for others, but I create hope for myself. Yes, that's absolutely right. We can't separate ourselves from others, can we? And we do. And, and emotions are contagious. 
And if we are flooded with an emotional response, our prefrontal cortex isn't going to work properly. We're not going to think clearly. We're not going to be problem solving. We're not going to be useful. We are actually rendered useless um, if we allow that to happen. And it's not being mean. It's not being unkind. It's actually self-preservation so that we can be a cog in the wheel of helping others. That's what I believe. In fact, there's an awful lot of research that shows that um, if we can... If we can help people before they slide down into a dark, dark place of depression, if it's just at the tip of that, people can help themselves very much if they help others. It gives them a respite for thinking, from thinking inwardly, which is a painful place, and can you can go into that spiral that goes very much into that dark, dark place. So if you can actually think of helping another um, it just gives you that moment of respite so that you get your own troubles in perspective and you can you can feel slightly more resilient. I think it's, it's for me, there's also a flip side to that in, in that it, it's not only, but when we look at this sort of like the, the, the hormones and, and, the, and the, the, the emotions involved, um, you're talking about your prefrontal cortex earlier and sort of when cortisol floods your body and when, you, when you're stressed, you know, you, you can't really think clearly. And we know that um, oxytocin and serotonin, those kind of things help us again to sort of get out of that, you know. And so for me, I think that's the responsibility of leaders as well. When, when to allow people when you're sitting in that pain and you don't want to reach out because you're, you're so stuck in it to have somewhere to connect to. I think that the, the thing that helped me a lot with the, with COVID was to be able to get a hug in the mornings and just get sort of let that little trigger of oxytocin. You're sort of like, okay, this is going to be okay day, you know? That's right. And, and so do you see that in, in, in businesses as well? The example of neurochemicals in the brain is really very clear when it comes to any kind of leadership role or anything in the business world. And I'll give you an example. When many years ago, my husband and I had to go to see our solicitor. My husband's name is David and our solicitor's name was Peter. Now, Peter and David were friends. So Peter came to the office expecting this meeting with David and Linda to be a really lovely meeting. So he would have had high levels of dopamine secretions um, raging around his system because it was anticipation of a pleasurable experience. It was an anticipation of a feeling of reward. Uh, David went into the office also expecting a lovely meeting with his friend Peter and to get this job done and ticked in the box. You know, that's done and parked now. But when we got to the office... Peter hadn't done what David was expecting. Now, this is a real, a really good example in the business world. So both parties were coming together with high levels of expectations, like your sales force giving you a, a, a false number of what they're going to achieve this month. So their forecast is, is exaggerated and they come in low in numbers, that sort of feeling. So if both of these, these two men, equally stubborn as one another, locked horns because David was really like, why haven't you done it? Peter's going, yes, but, and, and he was now on the defense because he was expecting this lovely meeting. So both of their dopamine levels dropped, they plummeted, which meant their prefrontal cortex went into fog, they couldn't think clearly, and they, they just became so stubborn and ridiculous. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, and I'm looking around the office, and as I'm looking around, there was a cupboard with Peter's courtroom wig on the top. And I said to Peter, I said, 
How do you clean that thing? He went, good God, girl, you don't clean it. You kick it round the gutter so it looks more worn. Well, immediately diffused the situation. And um, both of them felt better. Both of them felt the neurochemicals, the feel-good neurochemicals rise again. And they actually had a sensible conversation. So you can see, you, we can't use humour too flippantly in a business world, but sometimes it, you need to diffuse situations, especially when two or more parties come together with high expectations, because the neurochemicals will will play tricks on us and make make our lives much more difficult. I, I can see that. I, it reminds me of a situation I had with a manager I once had, where I would not ask for help until such time as I was in desperate need. So 99% of the time, I would run my projects, millions of euros, you know, by myself, great margins, everybody's happy, team's happy, you know, clients happy. And then every so often, I'd run into a, a snag that I couldn't solve, and that I needed someone to brainstorm with. And what I didn't realize at the time is that was not the right person to brainstorm with, but <laughs> different discussion altogether. But I would go and ask for help. And I'm in distress. And instead of saying, how can I help? It was more a case of, have you thought of doing this and this and this? I'm kind of like, okay, this is not working for me. Because now you're telling me all the stuff that I've already thought about. And so we, we one day had this argument that got so out of hand that I was about to resign. I got up to leave and hand in my notice sitting with him in this meeting. And this is like... This like the CEO of the company, and I was just that upset with him. And luckily, as I walked out the door, he said, I don't know what just happened, but can't we talk about it? Good man. And I went like, okay, thank goodness he still had his, his, his wits about him. And then we sat down, and I said, well, this is conversation. It's not working for me. And we took a break, and then we came back, and we resolved it. But it was just that one little thing taught me so much that we yes. cannot let when somebody's upset when somebody we lead is upset we need to take the ownership of that and and do something with it we can't expect them in their distress to come up with a logical solution no they can't yeah you really can't you need to actually allow them to vocalize their, their their distress whatever is troubling people you see a lot of there is such a thing as toxic positivity which is rife in society it's everywhere and it's basically when people negate somebody else's feelings and make them feel insignificant so for instance an example of that is um i have just had um a, a a very bad medical diagnosis. Well, you're lucky. You could be in Ukraine at the moment. Oh, well, it can't be that bad. Oh, a friend of mine had that and they were fine. Wrong. Just wrong. You've got to allow people to speak. You've got to allow them to feel that what is troubling them is important. And because it is to them, even though you might think it's not important, or you might be thinking, oh, I'm going to use positive psychology, I'm going to try and make them feel better. No, you must listen to people first. And then you then once they have talked for a little while, not too long, because you don't want them to go round and round and round in circles, but to actually express themselves properly, then you can have a sensible conversation of how you can help that person or indeed not help them, but work through whatever it is they work they need to work through. I'm not expecting any leader in business, any manager in business to be a pseudo psychologist ever, because that's not fair. But I, I, there are ways and there are techniques of, of 
showing leaders how they can be better at leadership within the world of psychology to make sure that everybody's working cohesively and trying to achieve the same organisational goals. What would be some of those tools? Those tools are listening skills. You really do need listening skills without being sucked into empathy, which we started, how we started our conversation, but having compassion. So if you are, if you are drawing, being drawn in and you're feeling the pain of that person, that could make it, you could be, start to feel very stressed yourselves, which, mean, which means that you won't be thinking clearly either. That's not helpful. So, but feeling compassion, listening to somebody, feeling compassion, and then saying something like, right, what can we do? Let's, let's move forward here. What can we actually do in a practical sense and in a business relationship environment and how we can make, make, make that different? So, yeah, listening, first of all, and not getting drawn in and allowing yourself to take a breath. Just go quiet for a minute so that in actual fact, the, you know, that you're, you're all operating more in the parasympathetic nervous system you're calming yourself down you're taking a breath and you start thinking clearly and become far more useful with your time i think when it comes to that listening part something i've I've struggled with for a long time to to because for me i need to do an action to be listening i can't be passive listening and so it becomes so that that active part of the listening. How do you do that? So I re- read a book by Frank, by Chris Voss, um, FBI hostage negotiator, and he talks about um, only asking hostage takers what and how questions. So not adding time frames, not adding judgments, and not not a why question or anything like that, and leaving it open ended and let him just let him to get them to talk. And then every so often, paraphrase what they've said back to them or parrot what they've said back to them, but summarize. And what they figured out is that you also have to include the emotion. So it's not a, simply a case of I hear you're saying A, B, and C. It also has to be, I hear you saying A, B, and C, and that sounds really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, always, and always. That made the trick. Yeah, it, you, yeah, because then that person feels you've heard them properly. If you try to summarize it in, in a very cognitive way, um, you don't act, they don't actually feel as if you've listened or, or get it or understand them. There's another tool as well, Eckstein, is if you're going to have a conversation like that, is go for a walk with someone. Because if you are an active listener, walking might help you listen properly to somebody. And equally, when you're walking, you're both looking in the same direction. You're not opposite each other at a desk so that you've got this feeling of more of a, you know, you're there, I'm here, and it's confrontational. When you're walking the same direction, you're actually going going to the same goal you're going to the same place so already there's a feeling more of togetherness in the conversation so that could be helpful I, I i totally agree on that one i do that with my coaches so um the amsterdam business district is not too far away from me and there's a park in between us so we normally meet in the park and then i walk with them around the beatrix park and that it's really great especially this time of year we sort of everybody facing the same direction the sun shining you know you're out of the office you can talk a little bit more freely and it feels like there's room to breathe you know oh that's the way they describe it to me a, a buddy of mine jason got, actually got me onto that he does that with his clients in new york 
and they go to um, to Central Park, and he goes to Beatrix Park, and then they both walk outside at the same time as they're talking, and so it is. It, it, it's still a walk outside and walk and talk, but not necessarily physically in the same space. And I thought that was also quite fun. Yeah, I did that a lot in the lockdowns. I was walking and in, and having meetings on the telephone um, in the lockdowns. I'm walking on my own in the fresh air when we were allowed to. <laughs> yeah, no, it were, I think that works really, really well. And people appreciate it too because it gives them a chance mm. to get out in the fresh air. That's the thing. We do, we do that negotiation as well. We never, when you set up a table for negotiation, you never have the two lead negotiators on opposite side of the table. You put them on a corner together. Um, so they're close, and they're, they're the thing is in, in international negotiations, they, they, they tend to be very adversarial either side of the table. But with the moment we get into the really nitty gritty stuff and the stuff that can be emotionally tense, you try and get to the corner because that that they're just working together on the problem on the table, not not each other. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned help in your conversation just now that you you got to the point in business where you didn't ask for help, but you needed to. And clearly, that would have elevated your emotional tension. Um, going to help now, I, I think this is a, a hugely underestimated thing in business. Absolutely massive. And, I, and, I, and again, I've got lots of examples, but I was working with one particular chap. He was the CEO of a company and um, he had the shareholding meeting next day, next day and he was absolutely petrified of it because the numbers weren't good. And he knew he had to oh, go meet them head on. And that was his feeling. And he was really worried about it. Now, this guy was also the, one of the founders of the company as well. So I said to him, why is it that you started the company? And he off he went. He was he got really animated and very emotional about it, and you could see that his enthusiasm was absolutely delicious. And he was really it was he was going for it. So I said, "Well, look, may I suggest that tomorrow, when you go into the shareholder meeting, you start with that story. You start with why you started the business, why why this, what all of the things that really great things, and then you say, but at the moment we're in trouble, and I need your help.'" And then you can come out with your PowerPoint with all its spreadsheets and numbers and whatever you have. <clears throat> but but that, but do that first. Let them see the you as the human being. Then they ask for help. And then you back it up with the evidence that, um, that supports why you're asking for help. And lo and behold, he did that. And the shareholders did not give him a hard time. And they did back off. And he, he, he basically cut some slack and, and managed to make things a lot better. So asking for help is, is, I think, a big thing in business, but not to leave it too long that you're an emotional coil when it comes to fronting your boss or your colleague or whomever. Um, I think that's, that's quite, a, quite a neat little trick to do. Well, not mm. a trick. It's not a trick at all. But it's, um, it's, I, it's a very helpful way of keeping business sound. I think it's good. It's, it's, what you, what's giving us is you're saying there's a – don't exceed the threshold before you ask for the intervention. You know, and and it, 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 those interventions we, we sometimes call them tricks, but it's it's basically here's an action you can do to ensure that something don't escalate or doesn't that doesn't progress to to a negative state. And so for me, those those things are really valuable tools because you don't know this when you're in your twenties. And you don't know this in your first job. You know, you, you have to sometimes experience the, the, the painful side before you realize there's a different way and that that's okay. So what do you, 
you're very young and you want to be seen to be keen and doing well. So a lot of people think that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And if you're, if you're new in, in a company or an organization or indeed young or not so young, but new in an organization, then you don't want to look weak. But that's such a mistake. Asking for help is not a weakness, it's a strength. Because there's a lot of people's livelihoods um, at stake here when it comes to any kind of business decision anyway. So we need to make sure that that we haven't, we're not tainting these so-called negative emotions, which annoys me in itself because every emotion is positive because they're all as valuable as one another. So, uh, but we... we 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 label them negative for hate, but you know, love is positive just for um ease of conversation. But nevertheless, when, when we are asking for help, we mustn't think of it as negatively. We, we think negatively. We must think of it as being very grown up that you are actually doing that. I think the Dutch are very strange with that concern, because what you're describing to me sounds very Anglo. Um, it's something we have in South Africa. It's something we see in, that I saw a lot in India and uh, to a certain extent the U.S. as well. Um, the Dutch sort of have, in general, has an approach that if you don't ask, then you know what you're doing. So you should ask when it is not clear. And then they will berate you for not having asked for the help. Not they will not berate you for having delivered something incorrectly. They will berate you for the not asking in the first place. And I th thought it was a very interesting approach. And the same thing, for instance, I was working with this team in India, and the the manager there was. I mean, there's a lot of status involved, you know. And you're working with they're working with a European company, so all of a sudden they feel like they have to they have to do a lot of stuff. And the the one thing in the Netherlands is there always has to be a balance between home and work. It's just something that's sort of part and parcel of working here. If you don't get your job done in the amount of hours available in the day, there's a few things wrong. Either you don't know how to plan, two, you don't know how to do the job properly, or three, it's too much work. Okay? If it's too much work, we need an extra person to help out, or we need to pay overtime or do it, but that can never be a structured thing. Um, if you don't know how to plan, we need to teach you. And if you don't know how to do the job, we still have employed you. We knew the CV, so we knew about this. So now we need to help you to get the job done, you know? In India, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> People come and say, here's something, here's something. And every time you go like, no, 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 they get more and more disheartened. And at the same time, you don't never set the criteria properly. And so what happened for me was this one project we ran into, this manager was really pushing to get everything done on time, and I, I pushed him to make sure we meet the deadlines. But what neither of what I didn't know, but he did, is that the lead programmer um, was sitting next to his dad's deathbed. Oh. And he got him to come back into the office took him away from the last days with his father, okay, just to be able to deliver our project. And I went ballistic when I found out, but that was after the fact, after his father really died. You know, we went live on the Monday and the dad had died on the Monday morning. It went like, this is ridiculous. It should never come to that, you know. So, yes, we had a big falling out about it. But to me, it just showed me that these cultural differences can sometimes mean we have expectations that are not realistic. 
No, you're you're absolutely right. And and if you think about the cultural differences in somewhere like India, I mean, I love India. I, I adore the place. I love the colours. I love the smells. I love love everything about about the culture. But there is so much poverty that um, you know education is revered to get to make sure that people are not going into any kind of situation where they can't even afford a bowl of rice each day. So there is there is real reasons why they mustn't be seen to be weak in the workplace. Um, because um, that is historically what has happened in India um, for many, 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 many years. Um, so therefore you have got this structure of serious poverty with serious wealth. And so everybody's trying to attain the next level. Um, so I, there are cultural differences are something that we have to consider always. But it doesn't mean to say that the brain is, is wired that differently. You know, we've, we've still got the same brains. We've still got the same neurochemicals. We've still got the same biology and anatomy. We've still got, we, sure, we wire our brain differently according to what we do. That's neuroplasticity. But that's the soft wiring. We're hardwired the same way. So um, we have to be um, careful very much of cultural differences and extremely respectful and understand them as best we can because we, our perception is our own reality. So actually truly knowing how other people are operating, we never will. So we must, so we must always endeavor to understand as best as we can and, and keep that communication going. You know, keep that, look, this in my culture, this is what we would do now in your culture, that's anathema. So can we work somewhere in the middle here? Can we, you know, so we come to a level of understanding, which means that everybody benefits. But cultural differences are fantastic. I love them. <laughs> I love versus I like the stuff that Hofstede has done. Hofstede, Hofstede here in the Netherlands, um, where he has this cultural mapping. I, this is usually one of the first things I start playing with with teams that are multi, a diverse teams. I go like, have a look. Is this recognizable? And do you feel you're a hundred percent associated with your own culture, or are you different in some ways? Just to give people that indication that. that just because that's the average, it doesn't mean it takes care of all the standard deviations that are possible. You know? And so for South Africa, similar thing. And I think it's also there's an Anglo element there as well. The the repression of the black population in South Africa over the over hundreds of years have meant that um, there's a national sense of guilt amongst the white people. So the moment they, that you say anything racially tinted, doesn't matter of what kind it is. It it um, even if it's positive, negative doesn't matter. Anything with a racial connotation whatsoever is so so sensitive that people immediately become defensive. And then um, the flip side is true. Whenever something sounds like it could have a hint of denigration in it, okay, um, I see that with the black and the colored people that I work with, they they become defensive or actually aggressive, almost aggressive. You're like, you get that, but as humans, those are triggers. It doesn't matter if you're in India, in the Netherlands, the UK, or Africa, you're always going to have triggers. And I think one of those things for me with leaders is helping them identify the trigger so we can keep that conversation going. So what kind of tips can you give us around that? What, to, to discover their triggers or indeed to work with triggers? Both. What do what, both. Okay. Well, to discover triggers, we've got to be actually really honest and think back. We've got to start. Um, 
okay, let's give me an example of when when X, Y, Z happened and they give you the example and how did the conversation go? Now give me a second example of the same, same situation. And you can start to see the pattern of the triggers that were involved. Once you've identified the triggers, that is actually the hard bit. Um, it's because these habitual responses, we, we habits are um, virtually not hardwired, they are softwired, which means we can change them. We weren't born with habits, so we can change habits, including our habitual responses. So if we can do that, once we've, once we've recognized the trigger, we go, right, okay, now I can change the way I respond. So you're bringing it to somebody's conscious mind. You're, you're, you're enabling them to, to empowering them to have attention or to give attention to this particular trigger. And they can start being their own um, Jiminy Cricket. They can start being their own um, conscience, if you like. And so when these triggers happened, they're going to go, right, okay, normally I do this, but today I'm going to do this. And you discuss it. You discuss it beforehand or you work it out if you're not working with anyone on this for yourself and you decide then right instead of me going i'm going to take a breath and ask them what they mean by that hmm. and get them to explain a little more so um so there are yeah there's but identifying triggers is the hardest part to be honest with you that's the bit that takes a lot of reflection and a lot of thinking i think uh but I'll this okay this is a book called thanks for the feedback um actually the theory comes back in difficult conversations well written by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen um love the bits. they're really really nice people um but they wrote this book over a seven-year period and one of the things that they describe in there they talk about different types of feedback but they also talk about the different types of triggers and they sort of broadly classify triggers into three categories um the one being a truth trigger so it's about content that you don't agree with there's a relationship trigger, which is what is happening between you and I. So it has to do with how we engage with each other. And then there's the identity trigger, which is usually all about me. And some of the, the, the ways that I normally describe it to people is if you say, I'd, that is wrong, the moment that goes through your mind, you know, it's a truth trigger. You know, <laughs> it's like I didn't agree because of content. If it's who the hell are you to tell me that, you know, it's going to be a relational <laughs> And when it's a case of, I am always like this, I am never good enough. The moment we have those exaggerations, it's usually an identity trigger. And when we, I find when I've, having practiced that a bit, when, when you start identifying that with other people as well, and you can start seeing they, they, they're zooming in on the content, or they're zooming in on the relationship, or they're zooming in on the identity, it's easier to go, what are my triggers and what are their triggers, and separate the two. And um, recently it happened to me in, in a conversation, I managed to separate that in the middle of a discussion in a larger team structure. I was like, oh, I'm so happy. I managed to do this for the first time as a <laughs> within a group environment. <laughs> and at, at the, it really gave me joy to realize that I can actually make a difference because now I can steer the conversation. Um, once we've identified those triggers, as you're saying, it's, I think it's important to identify the triggers. Do we need to deal with that as leaders ourselves or do we need to push it off to someone or what would you suggest? This is, this is self-work. This is working on oneself. You can't, you can't delegate this um, unless you decide to empower someone to tell you as a leader when you have just had, had somebody, you know, touch your nerve, touch a nerve and it's like, mm, and, you, and you want to respond. You must bear in mind that everything you've just said, Eckstein, is 
absolutely entrenched in emotion because those triggers make people have an emotional response, regardless of which category they're in. You have this emotional response, which means that you are not thinking clearly enough, which is where the trouble starts. So, um, so yeah, I, we've, we've got, I, uh, my suggestion is that if you can, you look in the mirror and you sit down quietly and you work out, why is it I do that every single time? You know, I, somebody just says something like, um, Oh, what, what I tell you one that's very good. It's when somebody starts to get angry. Calm down. You don't tell anybody to calm down when they're angry. Where am I from? <laughs> so you see, so so people really are not not handling things well either. They're making it worse. They're exaggerating mm -hmm. that emotional response. But my advice would be to actually uh, sit down and re self reflect. Um, and then work on it. Maybe work with somebody who's a coach, maybe work on somebody who is not with working within your organization, um, but that's clearly helping you with your triggers and your emotional responses that are not helping you, that are no longer serving you. That's what I would do. You were, you've done some interesting work around consciousness. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, I love the topic of consciousness. It's like the last frontier. It's this massive, massive conundrum. It, you start to learn about consciousness and you will drive yourself crazy. It is the most complicated topic there is. Um, I'm a neuroscientist and I, my, my doctorate was about unconscious processing of emotion. So when we talk about consciousness, um, there are two ways of looking at it. The big big one is consciousness what makes us us what makes us who we are you can call it the soul you can call it the essence you can call it whatever you wish to call it um, and in terms of neuroscience but quite frankly we're not doing very well at all in finding out what consciousness is at that level however if we're looking at what the difference between conscious and unconscious processing in the brain we're doing extremely well so we are looking at it in two different ways. And basically, conscious processing really means what you are paying attention to. And attention is a filtration system. So therefore, if we are looking at um, when, when I was um, doing my research, I, was, I put people in an fMRI scanning machine and I, I, I showed them photographs of real photographs of real people um, with an emotional expression as some of them were very high arousal, um, nasty, nasty pictures. Some were very, very pleasant high arousal. Some were low arousal. Some were completely boring, um, like a table or a lamp. So that was the control, the control um, situation that we had. Um, but uh, but these these images were shown below conscious awareness. They were incredibly fast and masked either side, so that you couldn't actually. We, we were not aware of what you were seeing. And um, the uh, I looked at nine regions of interest in the brain, and basically, those nine areas of the brain lit up where they looked at or when they looked at, at images that were not presented within their conscious awareness, way below conscious awareness. So our brain does pick up very much um, on emotional content that we are not aware of, and um, which we know with the books, you know, there's plenty written about it these days. This was a long time ago. But um, so, yeah, so in, in terms of consciousness in neuroscience, there are two ways of looking at it. There is this 
amazing topic that the, the philosophers are desperate to understand as well and they and philosophers don't really like to the neuroscientists to get hold of anything until they've finished with it so um, they're basically um that that's an issue in itself so basically when we come along with our lovely technology they're going oh for goodness sake this is a philosophical issue um, um you get a bit of a clash going on but that's that's good it's a healthy debate it's a very healthy debate and we see a lot of that especially when you go to Tucson especially, every couple of years they have a, um, a conference on consciousness and it's amazingly brilliant because you've got the philosophers, you've got the neuroscientists, you've got all sorts of people coming together to try and make sense of this crazy, crazy topic called consciousness. But on the other hand, if you're looking at unconscious processing, yeah, you're doing all right. And I think if we, we talk about these triggers, I assume that's, that's mainly unconscious processing. Yeah, if it, yeah, definitely. Um, but you can by by bringing your awareness to it, it will become into your conscious thinking, which means that then you can put put some actions in place, steps in place to um, overcome that. Is there ways we can help other people to bring it from the unconscious to the conscious? By bringing their attention to things, um, that is the way you do it. I mean, if I said to you, oh goodness me, um, hang on a second, if I said to you. Um, this sheet of paper is an A4 size, which it isn't, of course, as you can tell, but let's pretend it's an A4 sheet of paper. Um, and um, I, said that, I said that this A4 sheet of paper actually is um, the brain, the whole brain. How much of that sheet of paper is conscious processing? How much do you think, Eckstein? Less than 10%. Well, this question was asked a lot of eminent neuroscientists on a documentary here in the UK some years ago now. It's very hard to measure um, because, um, however, without, without exception, these eminent neuroscientists, all of them said that if that represents the whole brain, um, then oh, this much is conscious processing. So for people that can't see on the podcast, it's basically like having one dot with a pen on the corner of an A4. Yes, it is. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unconscious processing is basically drawing your attention to something mm. and it then uses your conscious mind to think about and do something about. And I, so if all of that is unconscious... Bringing the consciousness to it is like we're bringing a small, very small bit to one small bit of what is there. Yes. So it's like having a having a torch and walking in the African bush and going like, oh, I'm going to light up the world. It's not really going to happen at night. <laughs> the stars will do a better job. Um, <laughs> it's a, as I think it's an interesting thing to think about it. But if we... <laughs> Thing is, how do you bring someone's attention to something in the heat of the moment? Ah, oh. in the heat of the moment, their their attention is only going to be on their rage or whatever the strong emotion they're feeling and trying to express. Um, that's why you need them to exorcise what is going on, and then then allow the, them to calm down, help them calm down in um, by having a sensible discussion if you can, and then you can then you can get them to think better. You won't be able to get somebody to think just like that when they're in a high arousal state, emotional state. You mentioned, so, yeah, 
You mentioned earlier about cortisol, or we talked about cortisol, and in essence, as I understood it, cortisol is also the precursor to adrenaline because it's going like, get ready. Um, but that also impacts our executive functions and things like our emotional responsiveness or our, our ability to suppress the emotion on the other side is um, our uh, reactions to it or, or impact that it has on us. Um, so if we're living in a world with high levels of cortisol, because, I mean, we had COVID and now we're, we have the war in Ukraine, things have not gotten better. It's basically gotten worse for, for us as, from an emotional perspective. How can we as leaders make a difference in our day-to-day -day with, with our employees to, to get them off that cortisol high where emotions just, are right below the surface. One of the biggest problems with COVID um, for the last two years, it was, it's been the uncertainty. See, the brain doesn't do gaps. <clears throat> so when, um, when, there is a, when there is uncertainty, that's a gap. And the brain is going, I need to fill this gap. So if you think back at back two years ago, when we were, um, COVID first happened, the uncertainty was really high and nobody knew what on earth was happening. So you'd be ringing your friends saying, what do you reckon, what do you reckon? You'd be ringing somebody else, you'd be Zooming, you'd be watching the news uh, feverishly, trying to get information. So what we were doing is we were getting information wherever we could, deciding which bit of information was going to be our truth, which will be dependent upon our schemas and our scripts so far in the past and our perceptions. So we would we would decide what it what our truth was and we would worry about that truth in inverted commas. The trouble was it wasn't a truth and invariably nothing it didn't happen that way. So the stress levels cortisol kept doing this and we get a little bit more uncertainty and we then fill the gaps again and we worry about something that wasn't going to happen again and we go there and then we go there and then we go there and then we go there and before we know where we are the cortisol, cortisol secretions are in a chronic situation when they're in a chronic when they are chronically rushing around our system we can have high blood pressure we can have heart disease we can even have some cancers it's extremely bad for us so we came out of out of well we haven't come out of covid but the last two years have shown us a way that we can hopefully live with it um, and now we have got the situation in ukraine which is desperately awful terribly worrying for everybody just awful awful so the even more uncertainty, even more secretions of cortisol, even more. And as you quite rightly say, you know, there are some very good leaders out there who are trying very hard for their employees. Um, and they, they're lost too. They, they don't know what to do because, you know, do we work from home? Don't we work from home? Do we hybrid in, in meetings? Don't we hybrid? Oh, my goodness me. Oh, oh, I'm going to upset that person because they've shown they can work from home, but actually it's not working well because they are isolating, which means they're, they're suffering from depression. And la, 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 la. It's so overwhelming. And when you're in a position of responsibility, that's huge. It is huge. So my suggestions are these. When you're a leader, the first person you have to be compassionate with, compassionate with is yourself. You, it, you have to actually look after you. So you need to make space 
to do something that's enjoyable. You need, need to make space where you are spending time with those you care about. You need to make space where you have got some respite from this pressure that you're feeling. And even if you think, oh my goodness me, I, I can't come off the boil. I've really got to keep going. I've got to steam ahead. No, because you're, you're, you're putting your brain in such a stressful way that you're not going to make good decisions. You're not going to make really good judgments about things. So you need to, in order to be good leader and a good person for your organization, you've got to look after you first. So compassion for oneself, then showing compassion for everyone else and ask them, <clears throat> say, look, we're all in a real pickle here. What can we do together? What is it that you would like me to do? What, what, what is it that really would motivate you personally so that I can help you come off this awful treadmill, this hamster wheel that we're on. What can I do to help you have a discussion? And they will tell you. They might say, they might say, well, I actually don't know. I've forgotten how to have fun. I've forgotten how to laugh. I've forgotten how to smile. Well, that's probably anhedonia where people do forget that. Then that could be a sign of depression. Or it might be that they've just have got their heads so full of all of these things. Then perhaps go for that walk. <laughs> Again, let's get back. Let's get back to physical activity. Go for that walk. Go for, put some. Start a meeting by everybody telling you something good's happened yesterday. So you're putting the brain in more of a pleasurable state. So you're stimulating the new, the feel good neurotransmitters, which means you'll be thinking clearer. So you, anything like that, put on a, a YouTube clip to make everybody laugh in a meeting. Break the cycle. Break this. Rrr, feeling of um, I'm having to keep going. I've got to get my blinkers on because I'm so stressed. I've got to look and concentrate only at the perceived threat. I can't look at anything else. Well, if, guess what? If you're only concentrating on the perceived threat, you will not be creative with the things out here. You will not be innovative, which we all need very badly at the moment. You will not be doing any of those things. So it's actually those so-called so soft skills that will make or break a business. I think it's interesting you mentioned there the, the, the soft skills, specifically the the creativity side. Um, just to sort of when we talked about we talked we started with empathy um, and cognitive empathy, ability to see how other people feel, um, was measured with women to be generally higher than with men. Okay, yes, it's significant statistically. It's not necessarily huge, but it's definitely significant. Um, and so it was also said that it will research that it, problem solving, especially complex problem solving, happened better in teams with more women in it. Because every woman that you add to the team increases the cognitive empathy in the team significantly. <laughs> so the moment there are more women, it means that that stacks, you know, or almost becomes exponential, multiplies, you know. So... Um, that also, to me, feels like we, we should be saying that if you want to solve these complex issues, if you want to talk about the emotions in a team and the struggles within a team and the lack of creativity and the seems almost narrow-minded focus on stuff, we need more women in there that can, one, see the emotion and help us steer the conversation better, and two, help us see the possible solutions that people might be sitting with and help us be more creative. Do you think there's some truth in that? I worry very much about any conversations about gender specificity. Um, 
Basically, because um, you're, we're suggesting, therefore, that the male brain and the female brain are different. Um, there are certain tiny, tiny, tiny anatomical differences, but we must, we're only talking about, and we don't even know if they correlate with the different behaviors. So we are, to, we are and, and to have that conversation, you're talking about a stereotypical male and female brain. There aren't many stereotypical male and female brains. We have transgender, we have transsexual, we have homosexual, we have so many different ways of thinking. To label that as a female job is really doing a disservice to a male, yeah. a stereotypical male um, and a stereotypical female. Again, I worry, I mean, I, I was at a conference recently and um, where there was a transgender speaker and he um, put a, uh, she, a, actually correction, they were a they, they put a uh, PowerPoint slide up and on the PowerPoint slide were a hundred different nouns of how, what people identify as a hundred. So how can we talk about male and female in business? Um, I, I find that very hard to swallow in this day and age. Um, and I think we, we are missing a trick if we try to do that. I like that because the, <laughs> the research I think was interesting to see how, where, how they came about, what they eventually decided, realized what was the issue, that it was cognitive empathy that was the thing. So for instance, what I do with, with leadership teams is um, we do a test for cognitive empathy. Because I look at it as a capability, not a gender-based capability. And so there can be men with high cognitive empathy, just like there are women that don't have it high. And so when we generate towards what you're basically referring to, I think, as the, the statistical mean, <laughs> you end up with so many people that are really beautiful falling in, let's say, the 40% outside of that, or 30, 40% outside that mean sort of one standard deviation that are really interesting and, and, and different and, uh, and really special in, in what they can do. Uh, for instance, one of, the, one of the psychologists that I've employed is um, she tested off the scales. I mean, with, with cognitive empathy, just like nobody I've ever tested scored full marks and on everything else sort of seem to, to fill in to, to, to support that as well. And so she can sit in the meeting and she will before I even verbalize how I feel or that I'm irritable or frustrated or anything else, it can be a twitch in my eye. I can try and control it as much as I can. She will send me a little message go like, maybe you should just tell people you're frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in her <laughs> mid-twenties and I'm over 50. You go like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and so I went like, okay, I'm just average, you know, So because I tested as average. And then I went to, to China. And growing up in Africa, I've always heard people say they all look the same to me. And I go like, no, they're not. I can see the color variation. I can see the facial structure variations. I can see it all. But that's because I grew up in Africa. So I'm used to it. You know? So when I went to China, I was like lost. I went like, do these people have emotions? You know, like, <laughs> so eventually I just look for the couples in love because teenagers in love around the world, they're the same. They can't keep their hands to themselves. Doesn't matter how repressed the society is. They will sneak a, they will sneak a hand in there or just a small touch or a look or something. And when I started seeing that, I started seeing other things. And so when I started doing a more sort of like active coaching training in, in that um, I'm getting critiqued by other coaches on, on how I do stuff, I started paying a lot more attention. And so recently I decided to do the test again. Um, I went like, 
I'm in the 90th percentile. What the hell happened? You know, it is... It, 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 it's been a few years in between, but it's but it showed to me that that neuroplasticity is there. You know, we can learn it. I might never be as good as she is. Elena's amazing, but I, I might never be as good as she is. But you can improve it. And I think for leaders, as leaders, we need to improve that. We need to make sure that we can see when our people are suffering, or when somebody's sitting with a blender. Yeah, uh, neuroplasticity is glorious. Our brain changes our behavior and our ba brain behavior changes our brain. Think about that. Our brain changes our behavior and our behavior changes our brain. That means we've got actually more control than we think we have. If we can choose how we think, we can choose what our beliefs are. We can choose lots of things and our brain will wire accordingly. So you see what we basically we've got, we've got our DNA and our genes, which is, is bottom up, if you like. And then you've got the top down influences of the brain, which is our thoughts and our emotions and our belief systems. And then you've got all the stuff that's going on outside the environment and our social upbringing and all those things, our education, all of that stuff. All of those are influencing how the brain is wired. And all of those you can change and tweak a little bit. So even epigenetics, you know, so you, we have, and I, and I careful of the using the word control because people do misunderstand it sometimes, but we do actually have so much. If we decide that, like for your in instance, I'm, I want to be co more better at cognitive empathy. Um, so you practice it, the brain wires accordingly. Um, so, you know, it's like, ah, oh, that's so cool. That is just so deliciously exciting to actually have that that much power. Um, and if we can do that for ourselves and you tell your people who work for you, this is what's happening. Once we understand a few principles like that, we can really make inroads of being better people if we choose to be. What do you think of this, um, the phases of human development and the sort of that by the age of 25, our neuroplasticity goes down? I'm sorry, I'm not into this age thing. No, I'm an outlier. I love outliers. <laughs> a war of outliers. <laughs> That's what I like. <laughs> uh, okay. um, right. Uh, there are two, two types of intelligence I want to briefly talk about as we age. One is called crystallized intelligence and one is the other one is fluid intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is when we... Um, uh, language and things like that, the things that you can d develop upon, and that improves with age. Fluid intelligence up until recently was thought not to improve with age. And this is when you see um, an, a pattern in a novel situation. So if you've got somebody who's really elderly and you give them an iPad and it's the first time they've ever looked at one, they're going to find it very hard to learn it because it's a, they haven't got um, any point of reference. It's like this brand new thing that they can't even work out what it might be like to develop on that. So it therefore the fluid intelligence was said up until recently not to improve with age. Research is now showing that that might be wrong, that in actual fact, our fluid intelligence can improve with age. Basically, we can rewire our brain anytime at all, unless we are very poorly. And we can rewire our brain, um, but we just might be a little bit slower at learning new things. So there is nothing wrong with that. I, I get very frustrated when I hear people think that um, they almost um, 
put parameters and limits on people because of their age. That's not fair. That's really old fashioned thinking, really old fashioned. There's plenty of research that shows that the brain will keep developing according to what you do. What I find interesting about that is that if you, if we then, how do we explain, let me put it a different way, how do we explain then that people that have never been able to see, the moment we give them an implant of some kind, they can't really interpret the signals because if they could learn, could they not learn to interpret it? You are, you are asking somebody, if that's the case, you're asking somebody to do something that they have never done before. Um, and the brain is, is, it's not evolving that bit. That bit might not actually exist in the way that we understand it. So I'd, I'd have to see that research and that, re that research paper to understand exactly what level they're not able to do and what, what um, and how big the sample group was and, and all of those things when you're reading a paper. So I actually would pr rather not reply to that other than say, that um, if you're asking the brain as an adult to do something it has never done before at all without any point of reference or any, any use of that area of the occipital lobe, for instance, although we could argue, I'm arguing myself here, you could argue that in actual fact the occipital lobe, which is, is processing visual stimuli, um, you could argue that a blind person is still using the, 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 um, the occipital lobe because they're imagining what they are seeing that's around them by their touch, their sense of smell, their, their, their ears and, and so on and so forth. So it would depend a lot. I think the answer to that is it depends, mm. depends on those individuals that were tested and what level of whatever mm. they were at. Was. I think it's the, the, the research that I saw was, it was um, they did research that they, the people given implants, um, people that became blind and people that were blind from birth. And the people that were blind from birth did not really get a way to make sense of it, of the stimuli and the inputs. Whereas people that had been that had been sighted to some degree and then became blind were able to interpret the signals better and eventually beca they became something somewhat useful. Um, and I just wonder, what does that also mean for things like relationships? You say what when, when we, we give attention to something that develops, um, but does it also mean we have atrophy when we don't give something attention? Um, and if that's the case, then maybe that explains why we, for instance, with COVID, I mean, long story short, with COVID, I started reading a lot about isolation. And um, one of the interesting bits of research I came across was research that was done on on prisoners locked up in isolation, especially in the US, because that tends to happen a lot more there, I think, than here. Um, and the, 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 the structures, when it comes to relating to others in the brain, started changing. And it, the, 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 it seemed like after about six months in isolation, this was almost like it was a permanent change. Um, and I'm just wondering, to what extent do we have that now with COVID, that we, we've been so much in isolation, we've been so disconnected from others, um, what can we do to get that back if we still work remotely? How can we get that sense of connection and, and build that and maintain that? Because I think as, as leaders, you're saying that's really important to do. But how can leaders do that? How can they create that connection with their people? Well, first of all, um, when it comes to uh, stopping doing something, 
um, the brain, what the brain does is it will always go to the easiest neural pathways in any situation. The well, well, well myelinated neural pathways that are fast, the more that more neural pathways used, the faster it becomes because it, it's myelinated every time it's used. So it becomes greasier, it becomes faster, and the brain likes that because it's conserving energy and it will always go for the easiest neural pathways because it does an awful lot of stuff. So it's going to have to have to do the the quick and easy stuff at first. So therefore, um, if you are then no longer using a particular neural pathway, it won't atrophy. What happens is you will use a different neural pathway that you have created um, through neuroplasticity and you will use that neural pathway instead more and more and more and more and more. And that becomes the default neural pathway. And the other one is no longer the go-to neural pathway for the brain. Okay, so that's that's the new neural path. So that's really how it happens. But when it comes to um, people with isolation, I think there's a several ways, of, several things coming in here. Um, for instance, confidence. Um, people uh, I've noticed have lost confidence in a social situation. They're a bit nervous of it. Um, some people are still very worried about getting COVID, but one could almost ask legitimately ask are you really worried about covid or are you more nervous about coming into the office because you've you're worried about social skills anymore you've you've not been using them or um you're worried about how you're going to have to small talk with people you know it's not via a screen on a computer um so i think there are lots of variables coming into this um to this conundrum that we're in mm. um so for, for a leader, I would be encouraging people to perhaps come together for short, for short amounts of time. So for instance, I, have, I was giving a presentation a little while ago to a board of directors. Most of the board were in the office around the, around the table in the boardroom. One board member was streaming in, I was streaming in. Oh my goodness, I kid you not, Exteen, I worked so hard trying to stop this person streaming in becoming invisible. It was really hard. If I'm, I was better, I'm better off actually in the room with people streaming in and in the room than I am being streaming in myself because it was jolly hard to, because uh, you can only see so much on the screen. So it was, it was really, really hard. And I thought then, I thought, you know what, when it comes to important meetings, and I think these, um, I should, I'm talking probably once a week minimum, there should be a level playing field. Either everyone is remote or everyone is in the room. Because then you've got, you've got a level playing field which is clearer for everybody. And it's a very gentle way of getting people back out of isolation and communicating face to face again. Um, and I, so that is one way of doing it, insisting that once a week, twice a week, we're all in the room for a particular meeting. Unless there's a COVID outbreak, then everybody is remote so that people are not feeling um, mm. different from the others. So, um, yeah, in terms of uh, how else you can get people back to um, live events or being back in the office, mm. gently, gently is my answer just gently encouraging them to come back even for a short time 
and then maybe to half a day a week, then a full day a week and so on. Um, because for some people, um, working remotely works extremely well. Um, other people, it's dreadful, especially if you're living in a bedsit and you've got sharing a kitchen with five people or something. I mean, or you're living in a flat or an apartment with three small children. It's like, you know, so um, we, we've all got different circumstances. We can't assume that everybody's living in a house with separate rooms and they can sit quietly somewhere. Mm. So there are reasons why people would need to go back and there are reasons why people prefer to not to go back. But sometimes it's good that we're all in the room together regardless. So, I think it's interesting as well because yeah. the, 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 you said about when we talked about the, the prisoners, you said about the people, the, what pathways do you use? I see an interesting thing around me in that the I know quite a lot of couples that do not have children, and so they they found a rhythm at home, all right, with each person having a part of the house. I mean, Mahabi and I are the same, you know, he has his office, I have mine. And um, so we work around each other quite well, but we have these moments of connection during the day that you would normally have in the office with your colleagues. But now you, some people say, I couldn't get away from my husband or wife. And the others say, well, we found this rhythm and now I don't want to lose that. If I go back into the office now, I'm going to be there with a bunch of new people that have been that, that have joined the company in the meantime. I'm going to have, be sitting there talking to old colleagues about old times, but the amount of time that I'm going to spend with them is not going to be as intense because we don't spend that much time anymore. So this is much easier because I can hang up, I can walk off here with only wearing my underwear, and I can um, go sit somewhere. I mean, on a podcast, you don't even have to see me. You know, you can just hear my voice and thank. That's it, you know, these people that are in Zoom meetings with no video on. But that level of freedom disappears and that level of security blanket, in a way, disappears. Absolutely, absolutely. And then also, <clears throat> you know, oxytocin, we know, is the is the love hormone, the bonding chemical. Um and uh, we know that a woman secretes in, in abundance when she's breastfeeding and giving birth. And because it has to, because she has to bond with the baby straight away. So the baby survives, especially in the old days. Um, and we can stimulate uh, certain amounts of oxytocin with a high eye contact, handshake and smiling. Um, we're not getting that on a screen because we need to, when you bond with work colleagues, you start to trust them more. And the more you trust people, they become more trustworthy. So it's this rather delicious loop going on, a lovely feedback loop. However, what's going to happen when we're all wearing our glasses and we're feeling that we're together, that it's not a square or a, a rectangular screen anymore? We have got the new technology. What happens to our brain when that goes on? Are we actually stimulating those chemicals again? Because we're feeling that we are together in the same room. I don't know the answer to that, Exting. Um, and I don't think we're going to know properly until we've, we've done a, some very mm. big studies on the effect of that technology that we're all going to be using by the end of the year, I reckon. So, um, uh, so yeah, but I, I would like to think that um, human connection will never be completely mm. lost and that we are human beings properly. That's I think I this think. metaverse discussion, I, I, mean, I had a discussion with Mark Roman, um, who's, who's you just read a book on metaverse, you know, and I thought to myself, you talked about identities, like a hundred identities. And I think to myself, 
Yeah, but what if I'm what if I'm the pink flying rainbow tailed unicorn? You know, in the, coming to the office, what will be the new dress code? Um, will I be able to prance around, or will I, or be a peacock, or will I will I have to wear a suit even in a digital world? So one side of it, what's my identity going to be? How how are we going to refer to each other? What kind of a label identity identity labels will we require or insist on, or you know, will that be allowed? And then the other side for me is that at the moment we don't see facial expressions, but it's getting very close. I mean, some of the if you look at the um, um, avatars that Facebook has introduced, for instance, you can you can then will mimic your facial expression, and so we can transfer that to an avatar relatively easily in the digital world. But body language does not, because something like the Oculus stuff that we have from from Facebook, you you have two little handles. And it just shows the position of your hands, but it doesn't show the way that you sit down. It doesn't show the way that you get up or the way that you hold yourself. It's basically a face and the position of two hands and everything else is filled in, you know. And if I walk, it's just a button I'm pressing. So I don't – my walk is not there yet. So I think it will be a little bit longer, maybe two, three years, before we start getting into body suits and are we going to do that, you know. And, and, and so this tricking the human mind – I think part of this this whole problem with the Zoom calls and, and with audio only, for instance, is that because we don't get all the other cues, we're missing a large chunk of information and we get fatigued because of it. And so will we be able to have those long working days of eight hours if we're constantly in a digital room? And what will a digital coffee machine look like? I think we, we are, if, we, if we're in the digital room, we tend to be working more than eight hours. My experience is of people working crazy hours, they don't switch their laptops off. Um, they're nine o'clock at night, they're responding to emails. Um, you, you quite rightly pointed out before we came on this call, I wasn't well last week, but you know, the, but I'm still posting on Facebook and LinkedIn because I had I'd organised it with my VA and um, I, you know, I had it automated. So um, uh, yeah, you're never off. You know, you're never off duty. So I think that's something else that's going to have to be addressed. But you're absolutely right about the fatigue. It's exhausting, especially um, in those first two years with COVID. I think people were absolutely shattered with um, the uncertainty, the fear, as well as constantly looking at the screen. And also, even our social life was about screens, wasn't it? You'd be, we, we would be arranging in the evenings more screen meetings with family and friends and more and more and more. And it was quite interesting in the second year how that we were less and less of that, you know, the, the, Zoom, the Zoom games and the quizzes and all of that stuff got a little bit, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that now. I've had uh-huh, It's sort of, mm-hmm. really? Um, so, um, yeah, we've, we have been in a big social mm-hmm. experiment. We have been in a big medical experiment and the experiments are not going to stop yet. They'll never stop. We will be in a massive experiment in terms of how the brain is operating, how it is coping, how it is managing with the different ways that the technology are going to try to make us feel as if we are in the ring with people as opposed to just being on a screen. So we won't know the answers properly until we're trying it. I think it also brings me then back to what we were saying earlier. What is going to be your in crowd? What is your out crowd? If we, are, are, are you with, an, with one of these 
goggles on and the better one with the high resolution that other people are not going to see on the other side, you know. So when you're in the digital world, if you're wearing a really crappy one or you're wearing a really amazing one, it's your experience. It's not their experience of you. So where are we going to draw the line? What is going to be the stuff that's going to be important to wear? Because normally it would have been, am I wearing the right necklace with this dress or with with this suit or am I, have I got the right hairstyle or the right makeup on today or what, whatever, you know, or accessories, hats, gloves, scarves and shoes. You can never have too many of those, right, Patsy, from, um, from Absolutely Fabulous. So it is – what is going to be that going to be? And are we going to focus on the things that – make other people see us better, not just other people see our riches. I'm wondering how we get, how that's going to play out. Because he said, we talked about COVID and the stress, and we talked about the sort of in-out crowd to a certain extent, and then we saw the stuff that happened in the U.S. with the storming of the Capitol, you know, all those kind of things where people seem to have found a little in-group that they normally wouldn't have found unless there was a crisis, unless cortisol and oxytocin were sort of warring with each other and people trying to find some, make some sense of it, you know. And we have these little splinter groups now and, and some, some of them slightly larger groups. I'm wondering if the digital world's going to introduce a new one or new multiple ones in this metaverse. We will always have our splinter groups. We will always have our small groups that we identify with. And those, those groups, small groups tend to have a uniform, not always, a lot of the time um, and the, if the uniform is and we are going to be getting our 3D glasses or whatever else gizmos that we will be buying in the not too distant future clearly there will be different manufacturers because it's 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 commercial it's going to be competition and there's going to be the expensive version there's going to be the cheap version there's going to be the bit in the middle and what's going to happen is people will judge you by the make that you're wearing, what they can see that what, what I'm wearing, what you're wearing, we're being judged all the time. We are, um, we people are trying to identify whether they like us or not. They have, and everybody, uh, because perception is unique to each one of us, we never know what it's like to feel like somebody else. That's impossible. We can only have empathy and compassion, as already t- we've already talked about. But we, so we will be using any cues at all to work out if they're in the in-group or the out-group. And if they have got the same 3D glasses as us, then we will relate to them a bit more. And if not, it's the same thing, hmm. just different label. I think we, we, when we look at here on, on, on Zoom, for instance, um, other than this square, you don't know what it looks like here. All right? And the same for your side. You know, yeah. it, in... in, in, in and the, the the digital world is even worse. You don't see anything of my real life. I could be sitting in a bed sit somewhere in the middle of a city in one of the most poverty-stricken areas um, wearing the cheapest of glasses. But when I'm in the digital world, I might just be able to have created my own clothing and I can look like a million bucks. You know? So I'm wondering where is the yeah. judgment going to be? Is it going to be still be in what we see? Or is it going to be about what we know about the person? Because that seems to split. Yeah, judgment is always based upon our, it's always based upon our perception. Um, there is nothing else. Our own reality is perception. So whatever, however we perceive that person, I, if I'm standing on stage speaking to 500 people in the audience, I promise that every, every one of those 500 people will see and hear me differently. 
based upon their own experiences so far. So therefore, um, I, I can't change that. I can only be me. I can only be as clear in my in, in my interpretation of things. I can only um, uh, try to um, try to help people understand what I'm saying. But that's all I can do. They can still perception will still be there, and our perception now we have got an extra dimension because we have got digital. Um, we have got digital information coming in. And people are not, I, you don't know if I've, I've got jeans on, you don't know if I'm wearing shorts, you don't know if I've got bare feet, you don't know if I'm wearing stilettos. You just don't, by the way, I'm not wearing stilettos, I've forgotten how to, but <laughs> I know, I know. So, <laughs> so you just, um, we just, there's, we will, we will take different information than we normally use, but it's the information that's available to us. Uh, I think it's something interesting to talk about there, but about perception. So, in a way, viewing leaders as leaders is a perception. In viewing people as either likable or not is a perception. And I think that's something that we now see in the speaking world as well, that there is a huge perception element. It's not good enough anymore just to to get the most basic webcam and go like, okay, my content's going to get me through. It gets you to a certain point, but there's a certain production quality that seems to be expected, and yet it needs to look natural and authentic. <laughs> it is, it's this weird world we're starting to live in where perception is key, yet we don't know what the perception is people want. No, we don't know what they, what they want. Probably they don't know what they want. Um, because everything's new if you know the next thing the next gizmo comes out and so do, do I want that oh I better have one what do I do with it oh okay I'll learn um so so it's it's what I do know for sure is is it's changing so fast everything is changing so fast but our brain the evolution of the brain doesn't change that quickly so we are although our neuroplasticity is phenomenal um, how we are hardwired, what we're born with, is not going to change dramatically because of all of this new technology. So we have got to, we will learn how to handle everything because that's what we do. Um, but we, um, yeah, it, it is, our perceptions mm. will still be very human. I think, I think that's also important for us to think maybe to realize is that leaders are human. And so are the people we lead. Yeah, yeah. Humanizing things is something that I, I funny enough, I've noticed. Um, I've got an online program, two online programs, and they've always been very personalized. It's not just like, here's a load of videos, watch them. There's group calls, there's one-to-ones, there's all sorts of things. I'm about to personalize them even more, which I didn't think I could, but I realize I can. And they're becoming even mm. more popular it's quite interesting how um, people are buying more of human than they are machine. Um, so, yeah, we, we will see. We will see how it develops. But for, for my observation at the moment, the more personal personal you make things, the more people want it. I think it's, it's some, I see something similar, not in, not in the online world um, yet, uh, some of it. But the, for instance, the, the, in the 
in the master classes or the training they do, I mean, do similar stuff to you there, is this when we have these engaging elements within within breakout rooms, for instance, where people get a chance to share a little bit of who they are, the perception generally at the end of the session is what it was much more worthy, that there was much more value in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. But um, last October, I think it was, was the first in-person event that I went to in the in the almost two years and i was working with um a group of ceos and so they came from various in, same different industries different companies and <clears throat> i was with them for half a day and i just decided i thought you know this is the first time they've come together it's the first time i've been in the room with them so i decided to offer less content which is very unusual for me because i over over deliver you know i've just said so want to be useful um so i what i did was i i um uh i seeded an idea and then i opened a debate and i facilitated the debate they got more out of that half day than anything i could have done if i'd have stood up there giving them exercises to do or or just talk at them, which for half a day would have been hideous. But um, uh, but to you know, even with the exercise, I didn't do that. I just let them. They were all learned people. They were all very well experienced, and um, they mm. helped one another, and mm. just pulled it together. And they, I got the most wonderful feedback from that half day. So again, it's it's just like you said about breakout rooms. It's that feeling of. Uh, that they're contributing and they have something worthy to contribute mm. with. They have something that people want to hear about and they can help others. But back to that again, the altruism, we're about that to that, that being human, being kind of helping other people, which we do with compassion, which not necessarily we do with empathy if it, if it goes over the line. So we've gone around in a full circle. That was I would like to agree with you. And I think <laughs> leaders should also maybe take something from that in that we, we don't, when we get back in the office, what you said, be a facilitator. It's not about you. It's about your people. It's about getting them to connect yeah. It's about them reestablishing their humanity and finding the ways in which they can be better together. Absolutely. And finding and that is that you've pulled that round to actually that's how to get people back in the room as well, because they start to feel that they are part of the jigsaw puzzle. Um, and a working relevant part of the jigsaw puzzle because their contribution is is valuable and valid and and people can see that so they their self worth is is escalated their self esteem is improved upon so you get all of this it's it's interesting isn't it if you if you can bring people back and facilitate them showing that they are as valuable as anyone else and that they are you don't allow people to uh, be the more dominant person in, in that particular discussion, but it's very fair, then it's another way that we can help with people to unlearn isolation and to relearn uh, being part mm. of a community again. I think that's also how we will get performance back in, in groups at the moment. We have it in individuals, but we really need it back in groups. And I, that, I think it's a good place to stop and say thank you, Linda. Um, having a lovely 
interesting, diverse conversation. I love it talking to you. I love talking to you, Exine. Thank you for asking me. I think what really stuck with me today is that, for starters, when you start gets to the metaverse, we're not quite sure yet what would form in and out groups. I personally think it is the way that we can represent within the metaverse. If you look at gaming, for instance, who has the best gear? Who looks the spiffiest? Who has the most knowledge of the environment? Each one of those creates its own little group. You also have things like formalized structures, like guilds. Well, those kind of things happen in the metaverse as well. We have these VR worlds that we've been around for a while, but the full immersion that we're now looking at at the metaverse, what will that mean for team engagement and for our biological need to be able to see people's facial expressions and how much of that will already happen? I mean, one of the things that Zoom and other platforms are adding is the ability to change your face into an avatar that picks up on your lip movement and your eyebrows, but not full facial expression yet, but we're getting close. So how long will it be before somebody that is as overweight as me can look slim and svelte and buff on a metaverse? And what I want to. The other thing that I enjoyed today in the session with Linda was about leadership and the impact that leaders can have on returning to the office. We tend to think that things may go back the way it was. But what if it doesn't? What if hybrid is here to stay? When should people be in the office? I think Linda makes a very good point in that we need to find a day where everybody's together and not cram it just full of meetings and activities for people to do, but get people to bond, find ways in which people can connect even if it's during a meeting, make sure that those interpersonal relationships are built, forged, which gives us loyalty, which gives us connection, which gives us binding to the company and organizational citizenship behavior. Instead of it just being a bunch of people that get together every so often and do stuff together. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning as much as I did today. Now go out there be exponential and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.